welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning, Oak Hills. Here we are. Who would have thought that we'd be at a day where we were wishing we could once again meet in the parking lot? But that's indeed where we are. This is the first time I've been in this building in six months, and this this room is home. But I still wish I was out in the parking lot with you guys. So, But we are here. By God's grace, we're gathered together. We're still functioning as a church. We are still gathering. Small groups are still gathering. We're still part of a critical, we're still a critical part of Folsom. And though we do long to be back together regularly as normal, we look forward to that day. We have seen God start new things in this time of COVID. As God says in the book of Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. And so by God's grace, here we are. Mike asked us to discuss something that's been churning with us, something that we've been contending with. And lately, I've been contending with something that God says to us in the book of Isaiah. It's in chapter 49 in verse 23. And go ahead and if you have a Bible, grab it. Open it to chapter 49. We're going to be in there a bit this morning. Isaiah 49, verse 23. God says this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Now that verse for a long time has struck me as very beautiful, and indeed it is. But as I've spent more time, more and more time with my friend Isaiah, God has shown me more and more beauty there, but he's also shown me some significant challenges in my life. But first, let me explain how I came, out, came, how I came to be hanging out with my friend Isaiah. I've been a Christ follower since I was 16. But over the past eight years or so, there's been a significant change in my relationship with Scripture. Now, for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, it quickly becomes apparent that Scripture is key to what we're doing. It is fundamental. As Christ followers, we have been convinced that this Scripture is God's careful, explicit revelation of who He is and who we are the destiny of our world, and of our race. Now, this was assembled carefully by God, and it is His revelation of who He is and who we are. It's wholly reliable. If that's news to you, that Scripture is wholly reliable, you may have heard a different narrative, and that it's a common narrative. It sounds something like this. The Bible's a bunch of ancient documents that were corrupted as they were passed down. It's changed over time. We're not sure who wrote it. It was assembled later on for somebody's human political agenda, etc., etc. But if you look at the history of the actual documents and the evidence for their reliability, all the pieces of that common narrative fall away pretty quickly. So if you believe that narrative, that the Bible is beautiful in places, but it really is just a corrupted and unreliable human document, then I would recommend a small book to you. The book is called... The Case for Christ is by a man named Lee Strobel. Strobel was and is an investigative reporter who did not believe in Jesus and wanted to prove it wrong. But as he dug in, he found the evidence that it wasn't wrong. And his short book, great read, he shows that evidence in all its glory. Fascinating book. 
God tells us in the book of Hebrews, speaking about Scripture, he says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Scripture has unique power. It's where we encounter reality, and it's where we begin to be transformed. So as a young Christian, and then as not so young a Christian, I believed that to grow to maturity, I had to master Scripture. I had to master this. Now that's a challenge, because this is not actually a book, it's a library of books. It covers a lot of different territories from a lot of different perspectives. There's a lot to master here, and unfortunately, my strategy wasn't working very well. I read a lot, but I didn't retain a lot. I didn't grow very much. I was interested, I was intrigued, I was, I was motivated, but I could tell there were many areas of my life where I wasn't really moving forward. Now this change that I'm talking about happened when I realized about a decade ago, eight or so years ago, that the key was not that I master scripture, but that I let scripture master me. How I approached scripture changed radically. I spend more time in scripture, but I go slower. I cover much less ground. I've gone from hacking away at scripture to simply and intentionally walking into it and hanging out with it. Now, if how to do this interests you, I'd recommend another small book to you. It's called Shaped by the Word by Robert Mulholland. Now, many of you are familiar with this book because we've used it for many words in our, or for many years in our uh, Spiritual Formation Academy here at Oak Hills. Great read on how scripture changes us and transforms our life. So maybe the best way to put this is that I used to look at Scripture. Now I live in Scripture, and I listen to Scripture. That's a whole different relationship. It's a whole different approach. Now I'm letting God shape and transform me as He wants, when He wants, and where He wants, rather than trying to achieve mastery over some set of materials. Unless you think I'm talking about some great wisdom that's gained by old people after many years, I would hasten to tell you that my eyes were open to this by watching a group of people in their 20s and how they interacted with Scripture. This isn't an example of the wisdom of the years. This is more an example of, uh, gee, you were slow on the uptake. But thank you, God, I got here. So going back to Isaiah... One of the effects of this different approach is that I've spent a fair amount of time with the prophet Isaiah. One of those 20-somethings that I referred to told me that he reads a chapter of Isaiah every day. And I was intrigued, and I started to do the same thing as a part of my normal time in Scripture. Now, the result is that if you read a chapter of Isaiah every day, you travel through Isaiah repeatedly. In fact, you'll get through Isaiah five or six times each year. And notice, all that I'm doing is showing up in a particular place, the book of Isaiah, with regularity. The effects on me have been powerful. I, I certainly know more about Isaiah, but that is not the best of it. More importantly, I notice more, I hear more, I connect more. God's words in Isaiah are increasingly embedded in me so that they are part of my being. They are always right at hand. I'm not talking about memorizing Isaiah. I'm not talking about memorizing significant portions of Isaiah. But there are pieces of Isaiah that naturally come to my mind in various situations and during various challenges because they live in here. Now, you can do this with any narrative. 
It doesn't have to be the Bible. You can do this with Stephen King or Jane Austen or Tom Clancy or Sherlock Holmes. But Isaiah is not normal narrative. Remember, it's the living word of God. It is living and active. That is, it carries God's power. And not only is it living and active, but it is completely aligned with reality, unlike any other narratives that we consume. Fill in any of your favorite authors who are telling you how to good life. Could be Oprah, could be Sean Hannity, could be Gaines, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, could be Marie Kondo. They all may have good things to say, but they are not perfectly aligned with reality the way that scripture is. So, as we look more closely at, at Isaiah this morning, I'm going to mention a number of verses, and I suggest that if one of those verses catches you, write down the reference. I'm not going to have you look up a whole bunch of verses, but I'll, I'll mention a number of verses. Write down any that kind of grab your heart or your mind, and I'll have some suggestion at the end about what you could do with that passage. So, our key passage today, as I said, is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23. Now, the book of Isaiah, to set our context, the book of Isaiah is God speaking to his people Israel, a people that foolishly courted disaster over and over and over, and were very successful in finding it. Like us, the Israelites were beloved yet fallen people. And I want to, I want to emphasize this, they're just like us. Like us, we are beloved, and yet we're fallen and sinful creatures. In the book of Isaiah as a whole, God, as he usually does, he pulls no punches about Israel's unfaithfulness to him or how terrible the consequences of that unfaithfulness have been. So that's the story God's telling. When we get to chapter 49, now God starts telling Israel about how lavish his restoration of them is going to be. Again, how similar to what God shows us in the gospel in the New Testament narratives, how he is restoring us, men and women, to himself, and how lavish that restoration is. So overall, chapter 49 is a picture of God's restoration, and it is really, really good news. So when we get to our verse today, verse 23, God says, then you will know I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. The then, when God says then, he's referring to Israel's restoration, which God describes so beautifully in this chapter. Then, when you are restored, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. So remember, I'm hanging out with Isaiah. I've been here at this verse a couple of dozen times. Recently, though, God opened up a great beauty to me by putting this question in my head. What does it mean to not be disappointed? It means to be satisfied. It means to be fulfilled. It means to be contented. So we'll look into that. But first, at face value, this is a freaky statement by God. This is the God of the universe, the one that created the heavens and the earth, who created you and me, saying to you, one to one, you will not be disappointed. Steve, you will not be disappointed. Ginger, you will not be disappointed. It's an amazing statement by God. 
So since God is promising that we'll be satisfied, let's look at what that means by looking at what God has said about that kind of satisfaction and fulfillment elsewhere, elsewhere in his word. And I'll paint three thumbnail sketches to look at this satisfaction and fulfillment from three different angles. First, God's provision for us. Second, his transformation of us. And third, his incredible love for us. So first, God promises abundant provision. And here's the first scripture reference. You don't need to look this up, but if this grabs you, write it down. It's Romans 8, 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now you'll notice here in many places in scripture where God describes our fulfillment or our satisfaction, he often uses an infinitude. And an infinitude is any word that indicates either an infinite supply, words like always or all, or an infinite absence, words like nothing or none. So God says in the infinite, how will God along with Jesus not graciously give us all things? It's an incredible Incredible picture of our, what he provides for us. Psalm 23, God says you will lack nothing, another infinitive. Psalm 34, God says you will lack no good thing, and on and on and on throughout Scripture. Second sketch, God promises our transformation. A huge part of the fulfillment that God has for us is our own individual transformation into creatures of glory. That is, creatures of great beauty. Now, the Old Testament has numerous references to our individual transformation, but when you get to the New Testament, it's basically all about our transformation, both as individuals and as the people of God. So I want to look for a sketch into Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Notice the, the transformative process is all right there. He who began a good work in you, it's got a beginning, will carry it on. It's a process over time to completion. It has an end point. God promises to transform us. It's not our work. We have to cooperate, but it's what he does because he loves us. Third sketch, God promises his unfailing and infinite love. Again, we're in Romans 8, this time verse 38. I am convinced that this is Paul speaking who had seen it all. Uh, he had seen Jesus. He had seen suffering, he had seen challenge, he'd seen glories he had never, ever imagined he would see. And close to the end of his life, he says this, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is completely invincible. And look again, he refers to the, infinite, in the, to the infinite, nor anything else in all creation, meaning nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when God says in Isaiah 49, those who hope in me will not be disappointed, these are the ways he backs that up. As Jesus' people, as God's sons and daughters, we have an amazing inheritance. So that's the beauty that God put before me. But because I was hanging out in Isaiah, there was another thing he put into my mind, another question that challenged me. He put this thought into my head. What about those who hope in other things? 
whose hope is not in God. Isaiah says, those who hope in me will not be disappointed. But what about those whose hope is in something else? What about me when my hope is in something else? Scripture is very clear that those who hope in something other than God will end up disappointed. I don't say are likely to be disappointed. God is clear in his warnings that hoping in anything other than him, putting your trust in anything or anyone else, will fail. It is doomed to failure. When you put your hope in something else, anything other than God, that thing is an idol. Now, as fallen creatures, creating idols is what we do. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. When we come to Jesus, he begins to cure us of our idols. It's a gradual process, and it requires our cooperation. So I want to ask a question. What might your idols be? And I'd like to talk about that. Let's talk about your idols, because I'd rather do that than talk about my idols. But seriously, it's easy to worship idols without knowing that you're doing it. Let's look for a minute at what they might be, how you might recognize them. Why? Because whenever we worship an idol, and this is key, we are getting ripped off. We think we're doing something that will help our lives go well, but we're getting fooled. Only God, only trusting in the one who made us, loves us, and intends our great good can fulfill us and give us the life that is truly abundant. So let's look. Now, an idol is anything you trust other than God to make your life go well. It's that simple. And trusting in idols is the opposite of trusting in God. So I've got a handy checklist for you. See if any of these, if you recognize any of these or have seen any of these lurking somewhere in your life. Your idol could be a relationship. How many of us at some point have said, if I could only find the right mate, then my life would go well? I remember saying that. There's, a bet, there's an even more popular version of the same thing. If only I could fix the mate I have, then my life would go well. I actually kept that idol in a closet at my house for about 15 years. An idol could be some dream about who you are going to be or what you are going to accomplish, a certain kind of career, a certain kind of achievement, a certain kind of recognition. Your idol could be the success of your children. How many AP courses can they handle? What sports teams do they make? What college can they get into? What kind of career do they have? Your idol could be sexual experience. Fundamental to the culture that we live in is the primacy of sexual liberty. What I want, when I want, and who I want it with. That's a very common idol. Your idol could be cars. Your idol could be clothes. Your idol could be houses. Your idol could easily be comfort. Your idol could be your bank accounts. Your idol could be your neighborhood, either the one you're in or the one you hope to be in. Your idol could be your idea of what the United States is. Your idol could be control over your time. It could be control over your security could be control over your health, could be control over your image. So if these are possible idols, what does it actually mean to worship them? How do you know if you are worshiping idols? Well, to look at that, I want to look back in Isaiah, but I want you to flip back three chapters to Isaiah 46. We were in 49. I want you to look at Isaiah 46. 
And I'm going to look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 46, 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh silver out on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. Now, I'm pretty sure if I came over to your house, I would not find little figurines of gold or silver or wood that you bow down to. But the idols that we keep in our hearts and in our lives work the exact same way. Here's what it means to worship an idol. First, you face it. You orient yourself towards the idol. You give it your attention. Then you prioritize it. You spend your time on it. You look to that idol to ensure that your life will go well. And because you are dependent on it, you will take great pains to guard it so that you don't lose it or have it taken away. So why is this such a bad idea? If it's so common for us to do this, why doesn't this work? Well, Isaiah continues in verse 7 and gives us the answer. They lift the idol to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. But from that spot, it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. This is the deal. Our idols are simply incompetent. They cannot secure us. They cannot fulfill us. They cannot defeat death. They cannot give us life everlasting. Now, there are many, many passages in the Old Testament where God is warning his people not to trust in idols. But when the meek and gentle Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he turns this up to 11. Let's look at Matthew 7. You don't have to open to it. I'll read you a passage from it. In Matthew 7, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he's been teaching a crowd of thousands of people for many hours, maybe all day. He's covered a lot of ground. By the time we get to chapter 7, these people know that he is from God. They know that he has power never seen before, and they want what he is talking about. But then, in verse 21 of chapter 7, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is, who is in heaven. I'm going to stop there because we know this verse. We've heard this verse so many times. It flies right over our head. It flew right over my head. So instead of, of continuing that, I'm going to read you the same passage in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message because I think this really drives it home to me where I live. This is Jesus speaking to the crowd. Knowing the correct passwords, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say to them? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. That I get. Sky Jathani in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious, calls this passage the most frightening passage in Scripture. 
And then he says, if we are to enter Jesus' kingdom, he must actually be our king. So in closing, I want to say that this hasn't exactly been a newsflash, but a reminder of this reality. The stakes of life on earth are very, very high. That is how God designed it. Is there a warning here? Absolutely. But God is not a hard bargainer, and God is not a hard taskmaster. Taskmaster. He is the living God whose desire is for you, the individual. He does not want your gold. He does not want your silver. He does not want your good behavior. He wants you. Doing the right things with your gold and silver and behaving in ways that please God are just the fruit of new life in him. They're not the way to new life in him. They're the result of the new life that he offers you freely. They're the result of your transformation. All he asks is that you trust him and follow him. He'll do the rest. Wherever you are, this is God's word to you through the prophet Jeremiah. And again, this is God, the creator of the universe, speaking to you as an individual. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again. That's the kind of God who might say to you, you will not be disappointed. If one of the passages I've referred to today strikes you, here's my recommendation. Go to it and just spend unhurried time with it. Abide in it. Hang out in it. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your understanding of it. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, the Holy Spirit is waiting for you to ask to hear from him. Go slow. Think about what you're being told. Rehearse it. Make that passage your best friend for a day or for a week or for a month. And trust what God has already told you, that his word is living, active, and powerful. It will act on you if you let it. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when our eyes are opened, when our ears are unplugged, we are blown away by your goodness. So give us eyes to see, God. Give us ears to hear that we may see you and hear you and be healed. Amen.